0: to everybody wearing those Black Kid Life shirts because we've been able to host that for the first time tonight in some time. So this is the first time I've been preaching in some time. People are like, you ready to preach? I'm like, yeah, this sermon's been sitting around for a couple weeks, I'm ready. I'm ready to unleash it. So we're gonna jump back into our series, High Definition. And just as a refresher, uh, because it has been some weeks, or maybe you're here for the first time, or the first time in a while, we're in this summer series, really just hitting on the fact that the definitions of our words matter. The definition of our words can make a world of a difference. Especially when you look at the, the famous proverb, Proverb 1821, where in one translation it says, Words can bring death or life. And so often when we talk about our words, we talk about our conversations, the ideas we put forth with our words, the things we say, but what about each individual word? Each word with the power of death and life. When we lose our spiritual vocabulary, it can result in in a decay of belief rather than the life that's promised. So we spent a lot of time in previous weeks looking at surveys that show the decay of belief in our culture. We've looked at a survey uh, that was massive from the 16th century to this century about our use of religious vocabulary, both printed, online, this massive survey. And in the last hundred years, it found that most of our religious vocabulary has been cut in half. We're not talking about it. It's not being spoken of. The question is why. So the quote that I've read each week is by the poet Christian Wyman who asked the question that kind of stirred the pot for this series. He says, does the decay of belief among educated people in the West precede the decay of language used to define and explore belief? Or do we sense the fire of belief fading in us only because the words are sodden with overuse and imprecision and will not burn? See, when Solomon wrote his proverb about the power of words, he didn't have to look very far for inspiration. He didn't have to look very far for for proof. His father, David, King David of the Old Testament, writes most of the psalms, right, which is the biggest book in the Bible. David was prolific with his words. Does anybody have like a a favorite song? You talk about the, the book of psalms. Does anybody have a favorite one that they return to for comfort, maybe challenges you in a certain way? Psalm 91, right? He's our refuge. Psalm 16, right? Boundary lines have fallen in good places. 23. Lord is our shepherd. Anybody else? Which one? Psalm 1. Yup, Being rooted, meditating on God's word. I know for me, I've shared it before and I'll share it again. Like few things in my life have injected uh, life into my prayer life and, and my time with God, like memorizing psalms. Uh, a few years ago, I, I memorized, uh, it was Psalm 25, uh, a couple years after that, Psalm 51, and I share that because I'm trying to, carry <laughs> work my way through memorizing Psalm 16. There's a power in the psalms, and I, I found that I'm in good company. Like we shared about a month ago now, Tim Keller, who's a prolific author, prolific pastor, uh, he shared... In one of his books, how he has for the last 20 years, so the last 20 years, is that 240 months? Whatever. The last 20 years, every month, he's read through the entire book of Psalms. Every month, he reads through the Psalms. You might ask, why? Why this focus on Psalms? Well, he again points to his prayer life. Tim Keller in, in his book, he says, there are other prayers in the Bible, but no other place where you have an entire course of theology and prayer form, and no other place where you have every possible heart condition represented, along with the way to process that situation before God. Even the Lord's prayer is more a summary of what we must pray, while the Psalms are a comprehensive program in how to pray it. I love this phrase, a comprehensive program in how to pray. And if you were to look at the comprehensive program of the Psalms, you see different kinds of Psalms. Like, you've got the psalms of praise and thanksgiving, and these are the psalms that uh, turn into worship choruses, and we turn into songs and make a shout and amen when they're read. They're the psalms of worship and adoration, praise and thanksgiving. Then there's the psalms of, like, trust and confidence. These are the, what I would call your standard devo psalms, right, times of devotion, in the morning with God, where there are psalms of just trust and confidence in who God is. Reassuring yourself before you go into the day that God's got your back. You can trust in him. You can have confidence in him. Then there's psalms of protection and rebuke. This is like the movie War Room. These are the, 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 the psalms that you shout at the enemy, right, that throw in your clip and fire off at anxiety and stress and fear, and you remind yourself of, of God's protection. God's got your back. There's the Messianic and Royal Psalms right, where it just speaks of God's glory. Psalms that just speak of the glory of God's creation and psalms that point to the coming of Jesus Christ and the hope we have in that. And then there's psalms of confession and repentance. Again, these are almost comforting because we see that, yeah, David wasn't perfect and yet he was a man after God's own heart. Again, Psalm 51 is the psalm of confession that I find so much life and power in. Just beautiful psalm. But you know the one type of psalm that we probably don't uh, rush to memorize, (laughs) the kind that we don't like to read with our morning coffee, and the kind we certainly don't turn into worship songs is the psalm of lament. Psalm of lament. And they make up approximately, depending on who you ask, half to two-thirds of the book of psalms. Again, I'm not good at math, but that's up to a 100 of the psalms we have in the Old Testament are psalms of lament before God. Like Psalm 77, where it says, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? And some would say, well, well, those are rhetorical questions. I mean, really? I think sometimes lament makes us uncomfortable because you're like, how is this even allowed yet alone in our Holy Scripture, right, God's Word, because we like psalms of praise. Again, we like psalms of protection. We like psalms of trust. We like psalms of thanksgiving. But often we don't know what to do with these psalms of protest. They're not so much theological as they're, they're visceral. They're not uh, refined. They're They're raw. Sometimes they're rambling. They just go on and on. And many of these psalms have resolutions. Some of them don't. Sometimes we don't know what to do with them because in the church culture that we so often live in, in the church culture we've created, there's this unspoken expectation that I've got it figured out, that I'm okay. So we refuse to lament, but the Bible doesn't. I love this quote by the pastor and author Chris Wright where he says, Lament is not only allowed in the Bible, it is modeled in abundance. God seems to want to give us as many words with which to fill out our complaint forms, as to write our thank you notes. I love that idea of lament uh, loosely defined as filling out complaint forms to God. And that when you consider lament, it, it begins to shape the way, or maybe re- help us reconsider the way we see things like prayer, the way we see things like hope. And I want to talk about that tonight, but we should, from the jump, define. Okay, what is lament? Now, let's not go any further before we define lament. It is an expression of deep pain and sorrow. Biblically, what lament is, is an honest vocalization of that grief to God. You know, I love music, so naturally the the illustration I think of it is like if you mix the blues with worship music. Take take the the blues and, and turn it into worship. And the closest thing I can think of in recent worship is Hillsong had a song called Even When It Hurts. And the chorus said, even when it hurts like hell, I'll praise you. The scandal. (laughs) And I'm not sure what had people shook more, the fact that they used the word hell or the fact that they recognized that sometimes in life, even when you're walking and following Christ, sometimes it still hurts like hell. And you read Psalms, one of David's Psalms of Lament, Psalm 86, 13, where he says, Great is your mercy toward me. You delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol which is another word for hell. He's not talking about literal hell. David did not die and come back. But he's recognizing that there's times in life that are rough. And you read David's testimony in First and Second Samuel, right, what he went through, and you begin to understand why he writes some of the psalms that he writes, because he's walking through periods in life that are worthy of lament. But the abundance of lament is not just found in psalms. It's found throughout the book of Job. Right? A lot of the Old Testament prophets are lamenting before God. You read Habakkuk, that's most of the content of that book. And it's literally the name of a book in the Bible full of prayers and songs of lament that often hides right under our nose, Lamentations. We're actually going to turn there in a second. It's, so if, there, if you found Psalms where David wrote, right, it's the big fat one in the middle of your Bible. You turn to Isaiah, turn to Jeremiah, and tucked between the big books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel is this book of Lamentations. It's a book of lament. And you know, to this day, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish worship, there's a day coming up in August where they read the book of Lamentations aloud, and in reciting its mournful language, they mourn the loss of the temple at the hands of the Babylonians in about 586 B.C., and then at the hands of the Romans at 70 B.C., or 70 A.D., excuse me. But Lamentations was something and is something that's recited, sung, prayed, It informed and informs the the prayers of the Jews. Some of you may think, well, that's no big deal. It's the word of God. Some of you that have read it may think, it's kind of odd. Because I want to read a a passage for ourselves tonight. It's Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. Eventually we'll start digging into about uh, verses 21 through 24, but I want to give its context. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1, it starts. It says, I am the one who has seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the Lord's anger. He has led me into darkness, shutting out all light. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and surrounded me with anguish and distress. He has buried me in a dark place like those long dead. He has walled me in and I can't escape. He's bound me in heavy chains. And though I cry and shout, he has shut out my prayers. He has blocked my way with a high stone wall. He has made my road crooked. He is hidden like a bear or a lion, waiting to attack me. He has dragged me off the path and torn me in pieces, leaving me helpless and devastated. He has drawn his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He shot his arrows deep into my heart. My own people laugh at me. All day long they sing their mocking songs. He has filled me with bitterness and given me a bitter cup of sorrow to drink. He has made me chew on gravel. He has rolled me in the dust. Peace has been stripped away and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Then it says in verse 21, yet still I dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. Right, that passage seemingly shouted to and about God, right, it's in the, the word of God. I think it's powerful that this book, the word of God is life, and is life to us even in our grief. That God makes room for us to verbally come to grips with grief, even in Scripture, The author Philip Yancey once said that God seems to understand fully the grounds of our protest as well as our need to rage against the pain. What are the grounds of our protest? Well, in Lamentations, the grounds for lament is the loss of Jerusalem. They've been ransacked, pillaged. They had been exiled. The city had been stripped from their possession and and just brutalized. And it was the direct result of Israel's sin and their sinfulness and their lack of repentance, and these echo the same grounds for lament that all of humanity has shared since the Garden of Eden, right? The, the, the Jews lost Jerusalem, the city of God. Humanity lost Eden, the place where we walked with God, and we feel the same devastating effect of sinfulness, which is the direct result of the fall we see in Eden in Genesis, and the reality is this. We're not victims totally. We're all implicit in this sin. All have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet God in his grace and God in his mercy lets us lament this brokenness that's the result of our own collective sin. Like, pause and think about this. Many of you are parents. If you're not, maybe you can can bear with us. How many of you, your kid, whether it's a child or a teenager, has done something so ridiculous to hurt themselves that your first impulse is, man, let me show compassion. It's actually like, how? Why? Like, why would you even do that? Like, I have a son. He climbs on things. He falls over. He does crazy things. And, and sometimes, why would you even do that? You know, the context of the book of Lamentations is God giving his knucklehead children, <laughs> the Israelites who had sinned again and again and again and again and refused to repent, causing their own exile. He gives these same children the freedom to complain to him even when it's their fault. God's mercy is so abundant that he lets you cry to him even when it's your fault in the first place. And what's powerful is this lament by the Israelites is not just allowed. It ends up in Holy Scripture. It ends up in God's Word. It's a part of Jewish worship. It's a part of what you read when you read through the Bible. You got Psalms, this whole book of Lamentations, Job, Habakkuk, the list of space that God gives his people for lament in Scripture goes on and on. And yet the times you've probably heard lament addressed in church, in sermons, or in conversation is often a far shorter list. Because it's a concept, it's a word, it's a definition. As we're talking about definitions that we don't often consider or champion. Or again, memorize those psalms. We're not holding tightly to it. But I would tell you tonight that when you let go of lament, when it's punted from your spiritual vocabulary, it hurts us. It hinders us. And when we do that, it then hurts the church, hurts the body of Christ. Because when we don't give space to lament in our life, the same way God gives space for lament in Scripture gives us a shallow definition of prayer, and it can affect our definition of hope. So I want to look at those two things, prayer and hope in light of lament. And And the first is prayer. And just the juxtaposition, I guess you could say, between two words, fake and authentic. Because, again, you've got hundreds of psalms of lament in Scripture. You've got the entire book of Lamentations along with other books. And these are words of people. When you read them, like, they're seemingly shouting at God. And it's in the inspired word of God. Seems counterproductive. Seems backwards. And I think this is the reason Eugene Peterson, when he used to teach a class on psalms in this Bible college, he would have his students go out into the woods and shout the psalms at the sky because he thought it gave them a better understanding of what biblical lament is. Because you have to ask, what kind of God allows it and then would put it in Scripture? And I would tell you it's one that high, that desires humble honesty, not appearances, that wants authentic relationship in every season, the good and the bad, not just religious routine. Like you consider the book of Job. <laughs> I was talking to somebody about that book this week. It is... He's going through it. It's a book of lament spoken by Job. No doubt sometimes shouted at the heavens. Right? We don't think of these tirades as, as prayer, but he's speaking to God. Prayer in his essence. And his prayers of lament scandalized his friends that were present so much. You know, just think if I shouted them from the pulpit. Job says, why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Or why was I not buried like a stillborn child, like an infant that never sees the light? Why is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in? And it goes on for chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters. (laughs) And we see at the beginning of Job that the devil wanted to test Job's belief. He all but makes a bet that, hey, if you let Job suffer, it'll shake his belief to the core. He'll give up. And at times when you read Job's laments, it, it seems like the devil was right. Because all this can sound like unbelief. But I'm here to tell you tonight, lament is not unbelief because you're talking to God, right? Complete and utter unbelief wouldn't even go to God because he's not there. It's notable that in the book of Job, his companions talk about God, where Job, some 58 times, speaks directly to God, addresses God, shouts at the sky. You know, the author Madeline Lengel once said that the second I'm furious with God, I'm totally close Because you can't be furious with somebody who's not there. Another author, Anne Lamott, once said that my belief is that when you're telling the truth, you're close to God. If you say to God, I'm exhausted and depressed beyond words, I don't know if I like you at all right now. And I recoil from most people who believe in you. That might be the most honest thing you've ever said. And it will almost bring tears to my eyes, tears of pride in you for the courage it takes to get real. Really real. You know, God wants us to get real with him. You know, when we refuse to lament, When we don't take how we truly feel to God, when we don't tell the truth, when we don't apply the courage it takes to get real in prayer, we don't just keep it fake. We end up worshiping a fake God. You can drift into an idol, which is my own strength. Right? Think about the most quoted Bible verse that there never was. God will never give you more than you can bear. God will never give you more than you can stand. God will never give you more than you have strength for. And all its different varieties and translations, even though it's not a verse. It's a churchy cliche we tackled in the series myth busting. But the subtext of that statement, that God will never give you more than you can bear, it reeks of self-reliance. That I can do it on my own. I can handle it in my own strength. Now live life following Christ for a few years or a decade and watch that get kicked in the teeth. <laughs> But you see, when we act like we can handle all the suffering and all the pain in this world on our own, we settle into idolatry. Similarly, when we refuse to lament is to head in the direction of this idolatry, to buy into the lie that I've got this, I'm good. But to lament is to relearn our humanity. That, yeah, in this world, there's no avoiding pain and suffering. See, from the beginning pages of the Bible, it's broken by sin. There's going to be suffering that comes like waves. To lament is to remember that in those seasons, we need God's power. We need his grace. We need him. We need God, his Holy Spirit. We need Jesus Christ and his grace. And we do well to remember that Jesus Christ, as it says in the Gospels, is the word made flesh who dwelled with us. He's eternal, forever living proof that God doesn't abandon us in our lament. He joins us. He's at the sufferer's side. And when you read the Gospels, you read the account of Jesus' own life, he laments. I was reading Luke 13 this morning where he laments over Jerusalem. Like, if you would have repented, like, all this could have been avoided. He's lamenting over Jerusalem. In Mark 14, when he's, he's in the garden sweating blood, he's lamenting on his own behalf. Like, let this cup be passed from me. And then when he's on the cross, he quotes David's psalm of lament, Psalm 22, where he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, God blazed a path. From heaven to the dirt of earth and back again. And he's given us a pathway from our pain and suffering back to his hope and his presence through lament. See, when the rubble of life seems to have buried you, lament is like a tunnel back to hope. When we refuse to lament, what happens is we look around at the rubble, and it's so easy to give in to cynicism. So easy to let go of hope that this is all there is. You know, Paul writes in Romans 8, Probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. It's a powerful chapter of the Bible. He says in Romans 8 that, hey, look, creation is broken, prone to decay. It's groaning for restoration. That's reality. To deny that reality and the suffering that, that comes from that is to deny the truth of Scripture. But that's not to give way to cynicism and the posture of, well, this is all that there is. No, because in that same chapter, Paul says and he writes that what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later, that God will reveal to us later. Paul says, yes, the world has suffering. It's prone to decay. There's going to be seasons of hurt, but you know what I still have in spite of all that? Hope. Hope. Again, I want to speak to how lament speaks to our hope, because you read that passage in Lamentations chapter 3, and it hits you like body blows, right? It's, you make me chew on gravel, like just even thinking about that, like all this stuff that He says, and then he says in verses 21 through 24, I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. And I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. It's like this overwhelmingly short blip of hope in this hurricane of of grief in the book of Lamentations. Yet hope is present. Like the, the sun on a cloudy day, there's all these clouds of grief, this hurricane of grief, and yet it's like the sun peaks between the clouds in the book of Lamentations to remind us of reality that you can still dare to hope because God is good. Life can be hard, life can be bitter, and God can still be good. Lament in our culture, though, is, is often synonymous with, with venting, right? Like it's done for the sake of getting things off our chest, But biblical lament isn't done just to get things off your chest. It's to set your eyes on God again, to set your eyes on a good God. It's not just keeping it real in prayer, but it's connecting your hope again to a very real God. And when we come to grips with grief only to cling with, cling to it, we don't give it to God, we do drift into cynicism. You know, it's a slippery slope that I've often repented of. And when I repent, I sound like the father in Luke 9 of, who wanted healing for his son. And he says, I believe, right, but help me in my unbelief. I believe, but help me not to be a cynic when I'm surrounded by suffering and hurt. Help me to cling to hope. You know, God invites the prayer of unbelieving belief. It's powerful the way that Jesus responds to that father with his conflicted prayer, even in the midst of lament. And I said it earlier, lamenting is an unbelief. But I take it a step further. Not lamenting can lead to unbelief, can feed unbelief. You know, I grew up listening to music, watching movies, right, just subscribing to the narrative of our culture that to be a man, and it's not even uh, isolated to manhood, but to be strong, right, you don't show pain. Right, to be tough means nothing bothers you. Never let anyone else know they hurt you. This is a common refrain, again, for all people. If something hurts, you bury it. something causes you pain, repress it, forget it, you'll be fine. Shake it off. Keep it away from the surface where you don't have to deal with it, and you don't have to deal with it with other people. I feel fine. You know, the phrase comes to mind because there's a man named Jocko Willink. I think I'm saying his name right. Jocko Willink. He's a former Navy SEAL turned author. He has a leadership and discipline podcast. His stuff is really good. But uh, he's again a former Navy SEAL, and he recently told a story about his scuba training as a Navy SEAL, where the trainers would do all kinds of, and I quote, traumatic things to you while you were underwater with your scuba gear on. They'd, they'd rip the gear off, they'd pull at the face mask, they'd tie your regulator hose in knots, anything they could do to create mayhem. And then when you'd eventually come to the surface, what they wanted you to immediately do was shout, I feel fine. And he says, and I quote, they said it was some proof that you were neurologically okay. He says, I'm not sure if I believe that. I think what they were really doing was programming us for when there's total mayhem and chaos, and we get a chance to get our breath. Instead of freaking out, we just look up and say, I feel fine. Now, there's value to this kind of training when you're going to become a Navy SEAL and go into battle and lead people into battle. But I don't wonder if we've been programmed in our faith and in our relationship with God that when we step out of mayhem, We step out of chaos, and we step into the presence of a close friend. We step into the presence of God. And our impulse, it's like we've been programmed to say, I I feel fine. I feel fine. Books like Lamentations and the Psalms would strongly suggest otherwise. Scripture programs us to lament. Again, it gives us so much lament in Scripture to take the pain, the hurt, the traumatic things you're experiencing, and give it to God. Don't ignore them or suppress them. Like like that author said, fill out your complaint form and give it to God. Even shout it to God. He can handle that. God is big enough for that. You know, so often I think we bury our hurt. We repress our pain. We think it will be buried, dead, and gone. But really when we bury it like that, we just make it a part of our foundation. Where instead of the foundation being the hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our foundation becomes All that hurt, all that pain. And again, the fruit in my life, when I spent my teenage years and young adult years doing that, is I just became a cynic, pessimist, (laughs) expecting the worst. Not even thinking that all those things I thought I just buried and were dead and gone were informing the way I thought, the way I saw life, even the way I worshiped God. I feel fine. (laughs) You would think that I found... Jesus, right? Got saved. Live happily ever after. As my life is changing, I'm no longer pretending that I'm okay when I'm not. But again, in our church culture, we subconsciously subscribe to this unspoken expectation that we've got to figure it out. We're okay. And when you show up to church and somebody asks you how we're, you're doing, it's whatever churchy v- version we can find of I feel fine. Right? I'm blessed. And I'm not saying like next week you should show up to church and when the person with the blue shirt at the door asks you how you're doing, you should just bleed all over them. And every person subsequently through service. But I am saying in the church, we should have people where you're going through something, you're hurting, you're in pain. When they ask you how you're doing and you say, I'm fine, and they look at you and they say, no, how are you really doing? And you can lean into them. And they can be the body of Christ to you because God cares. And when you step into service and you step into God's presence, you don't have to pretend, oh, I'm fine. No, we say it all the time. It's okay to not be okay. God just doesn't want you to stay that way. That's why we come here, because none of us are okay. I screw up over the course of the week. My perspective just gets off kilter over the course of the week. That's why I return to God day in, day out, when we come to services like this, so we can say, God, I'm not okay, and I need you. I don't just need your grace. I don't just need your power. I need need you. And, again, the danger is to not lament. It's not just that you don't lament. Sometimes it leads to unbelief. Because if you're not offering your grief to God, again, you're burying it. You're making it a part of your foundation, even subconsciously. It's taking root to where reality wins and hope dies. You get stuck in the suffering and death and forget the the resurrection. You forget Romans 8 where where Paul says, hey, all this suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory. right? Cynicism pushes you away from God, but biblical lament pulls you into his presence and reattaches you to hope. It's how the author of Lamentations could say three chapters in, I still dare to hope when I remember this. Because his lament wasn't just venting, it was reconnecting to God and to hope. Lament is like jumper cables (laughs) that help us have hope again. But you know, just like when your car dies... Unless you got the special jumper cables, I didn't know these existed until recently where you could do it yourself. You need somebody to pull up next to you to jump your car. They need to pull their, their car right up next to yours. You know, this is one of the beautiful things about the calling of the church. To be Christ's hands and feet and walk like he did amidst the broken, the hurting, those that are in lament. You know, we're called in scripture to weep with those who weep. That takes Empathy. But you know, too often, when it's a a group of people, we often rather than weeping with those who weep, try to determine well should they be weeping or not. Or if it's an individual, we're more inclined to respond with a, a verse or a truth to quickly pull them out of their lament so they can get back to rejoicing again. But you know what's right up there with weep with those who weep in the biblical commands that, and again, they're not suggestions; these are commands in Scripture to empathize with people. We're called to weep with those who weep, we're called to. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. And we are the body of Christ. There's power in that analogy. There's power in being God's mouthpiece. Speaking, life, God's hope, God's truth. But when we only want to be God's mouthpiece, we so often step into Job's friend's shoes. The same friends were at the end of Job where you've just labored through like 50 chapters, God's basically like, it would have been better if y'all shut up anyways, right? <laughs> if you just didn't open your mouth. You know, so often we speak in times where we're with somebody that's in lament. They're mourning, they're grieving. And so often we speak not because of their discomfort, it's because of, because of ours. We open our mouth because we're not comfortable. And it's, it's okay to be uncomfortable with suffering. I think on a soul level, we know it shouldn't be this way. Like, on a soul level, we weren't created for this. This is the product of sin. We're not supposed to be comfortable with suffering. It should make us uncomfortable. But don't let that cause you to be quick to speak and slow to listen. You know, as a pastor, I'm absolutely guilty, right, because I want to come into situations where people are hurting and, like Isaiah said, have an instructive tongue to give strength to the weary, to know what verse to say, know what truth to say. You know, there was a prominent pastor One of these sermon clips that go viral where he was sharing, it was a few years ago, just the power of me too. And there is power in the fact that every one of us struggles. Paul, he he was speaking from Paul in his letters where Paul admits to struggling and and he could look at somebody in the eye when they were struggling and say, hey, guess what? Me too. There's power in me too. Jesus can say, me too. God took on flesh, was tempted, right? Suffered and died so that when we're tempted, when we're suffering, he can look at you in the eyes and say, me too. Can be a gift. And I'm not saying all this to say that that clip was wrong, but me too can also be an excuse to open our mouths and step into really narcissism, right? talking about me. Because again, we're uncomfortable in the presence of suffering, so what are we comfortable talking about? Me and my life, right? And there's power in me too, but the other side of the coin is Proverbs 14:10, where it says, each heart knows its own bitterness, We're all unique people with unique stories, walking through unique things. And I know for myself, many times when I'm itching to relate to somebody or say, me too, or I've got a verse or a truth that's on the tip of my tongue, I do well to remember my ears. You know, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul's writing the church in Corinth, and he says again and again, like, God is the God of comfort. He comforts you in your troubles so that you can can comfort this person over here in their troubles. Yet he doesn't say that all the troubles are the same, but we have the same source of comfort. It's Jesus, it's God, it's the hope we have. That's our shared comfort. And You know, so often what comforts me when I'm just going through it, I don't see the end of the tunnel. I don't see the solution in the moment. I just find comfort in the fact that God listens, God hears, God cares. Right, there's such a healing peace that comes when you realize that God doesn't just know your issues, he cares about them. He doesn't just hear you when you're praying, he, he listens, he takes heed. Because so much of the suffering of life and sometimes the hopelessness of life, it, it strips you of dignity or, or, or meaning. But when you think, man, God listens to me and God cares, it restores that. God is a good listener. So my question so often is, why isn't the church? Why don't we? You know, again, we as a church realize this call to be God's body. It's an amazing call to be his hands and feet, which is an amazing call, to be his mouthpiece. But we do well to remember our ears because our listening can be just as radical an instrument of healing as our words. Psalm 116, verse 2, David says, Because he replied by speaking directly to my situation, I'll call on him for as long as I live. Only it's not what it says. Psalm 1:16-2 says, because he has inclined his ear unto me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. This scripture is one I try to remember, again, when I've got this itch to respond or give somebody a verse, to pull them quickly out of their lament so they can get back to rejoicing again. But when we do that, we forget God gives so much space to lament in scripture because it takes time. Grieving is a process. Working your way through pain, you're not supposed to just bury it and move on. And when we deny ourselves the ability to lament, we so often deny it to those around us, and we're just causing hurt to the body of Christ. You know, the the New Living Translation of this verse, where it says, because he has inclined his ear unto me, it gives a beautiful picture, and this is what the the Hebrew is speaking to. It says, because he bends down to listen. It's what the word inclined means. You know, maybe when you talk to your toddler, right, you get down on your knees so you can be Not just eye to eye, but you can hear. Not that Raj speaks, I just get random syllables, but some of you can relate. Like when I'm talking to your kids here at church, I'm getting down on my knees because they're soft spoken and they're precious and they have dignity. He bends down to listen. You know, I told Thomas, I was going to be talking about Raj tonight. Raj has uh, been in a a phase where he fakes injuries. I don't know if he's going to take up soccer, but he'd be a great soccer player, Uh, (laughs) phenomenal soccer player. Because he will, he found out, like, if he hurts himself, like, mom's going to pick him up, hold him close, kiss the boo-boo, ask him if he's okay, and be like, oh, are you okay? Oh, he eats that up, because he didn't get that in the orphanage. Oh, so now, like, she'll be making dinner. I watch him, like, playing with his toys, and he'll all of a sudden just be like, fake a hand injury and walk in there to mom. And if I'm there, I'll be like, hey, man, you want to eat? Nope, he'll walk right past me to mom. If it's just me, though, he wants me to do the same. He wants us to pick him up, like, get his face right here. Kiss the boo-boo, say, are oh, you going to be okay? And then just love on him. Kiss him a couple more times, be like, we love you, you're precious. And I realize at some point this has to end. <laughs> we can't do this. At some point you got to cut that off. He's like three and a half. Normally you'd already be like, hey, he's a boy, let's, let's get. he's okay, right? But this is reality for kids who grow up in orphanages. You step into an orphanage full of babies and toddlers, hundreds of them, in most places of the world, and it's silent which is just creepy. It's weird. It's not supposed to be like that. You walk into our nursery right now, I guarantee it's not silent. (laughs) But they're taught that in your mess, if you cry, you got a dirty diaper, you got a fever, you can cry, but nobody's coming. It's like the inverse of this verse. Because nobody inclined their ear to me, I no longer call out. You know what that is? That's a loss of hope. (laughs) If I cry, it's because it's not supposed to be like that. But I think some of us, we're here in our prayer life. Because we've stopped praying, because we've lost hope, we've given into cynicism. Maybe we feel like when we come into God's presence, we have to say, I feel fine. Let's remember that He inclines His ear to hear. Praise God, he did, one doesn't leave us orphaned. Romans 8 speaks to many things. It also speaks to Jesus being sent so He could be the firstborn of many sons and daughters. Those other sons and daughters, that's me and you. And may we be those who, like God, we incline our ear. To hear the lament of others. May we be those who, like Jesus, don't say, get it together, but step down to join people in their lament. Even when, like the Israelites, it was the result of their own knuckleheadedness is not a word, so I'll just go with sin. It was the result of their own sin. You know, in the the fruit of brokenness, when we feel buried, again, lament is like a tunnel that brings us back to hope. But I think so often it's a gift that we kind of just leave under the tree unopened. Because we don't really know what to do with this protest. We don't really know what to do with this lament. But if I could have the worship team come up. Again, I I read a a brief bit of that quote by the author Madeline Lengel. And I'm not even sure I'm saying her last name right. But the full quote is this. She says, the second I'm furious with God, I'm totally close. Because you can't be furious with somebody who's not there. And when I'm furious with God, what I'm like is my son when he was about two. So a lot of us can relate. (laughs) And he would do something that was unworthy. He would hit at me and I would grab him and hold him tight until the monster had gone and the loving little boy was back. And when I'm doubting God, that's what I'm like. I want God to wrap me in the everlasting wings and say, there, there, it's all right. And that cosmic affirmation of, yes, I know it's terrible. I know it hurts, but be patient. It's going to work out. I'm not going to lose. I'm going to win. It's all right. You know, that's the conversation affirmation that the process of biblical lament not just getting things off your chest but setting our eyes on god again that's what we that's where we arrive doesn't deny reality doesn't deny the hurtful situation doesn't deny the trauma of our past but it tethers it to hope again it tethers it to the eventual victory and restoration we experience through jesus christ you know maybe lamentations one and two feels like our reality but I pray that we'd be able to speak what's spoken in Lamentations 3, where I still dare to hope when I remember this. When I remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8, that whatever I'm experiencing now pales in comparison to the hope we have in the glory that's going to be revealed through Jesus Christ. Again, sometimes lament, it's that gift we leave under the tree. We don't want to go there. Don't want to... Spend time in the fact we're hurting, that we don't have it all together. But it's a gift. I think for some of us, because we don't open that gift, some of us, again, if you don't lament, eventually it's easy to drift away from hope and into cynicism. I think some of us, if we're honest tonight, we don't pray, at least enough, because we've drifted away from hope. We've drifted into cynicism, this feeling where I just gotta say, I feel fine, whatever that is (laughs) in our hearts or in our lives. But God help us in our relationship with you. To remember that we're your sons and daughters. You're our heavenly Father. You incline your ear to listen to us. You bend down in our darkest moments. When we feel buried, you bend down so that you can hear our cries. And you don't just hear them. You you listen, you care, you take heed. Help us. God to not just remember our reality of Romans 8 but God help us to remember our humanity God that we need you help us to remember your divinity and help us to live like sons and daughters and pray like sons and daughters and hope like sons and daughters that we can step to you with any weight with any burden with any situations and we don't have to live like orphans who no longer cry out God I pray that you would help us be persistent in prayer as you ask us in Scripture because we are clinging to the hope we have in Jesus Christ. The hope we have when we read Scripture. And we're going to go into this song, do it again. Jesus, I thank you But as it says again in Romans that the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the grave, it's in us. We may be in a season of lament, but man like Steph was even exhorting coming out of worship we thank you that That's a season. God, even if that season lasts from now to the grave, our present suffering pales in comparison to the hope we have, the hope of heaven, the hope of fellowship with you. And God, we worship tonight, but we know one day, one day we're going to live in worship in heaven with you in perfect relationship. Everything we mourn and lament that we lost in the garden is going to be restored again. But God, tonight we worship you if you're here in a place we can stand and we're going to go back into worship if there's something maybe you've even stopped asking because you've given up persistence because you've given up hope and like me in the past maybe you've swung you realize you're leaning into cynicism because you keep burying things keep repressing things let's lay them at the foot of the cross tonight it's okay to not be okay but God through his grace says you don't have to stay that way you don't have to stay so let's worship if you need any prayer at all anything at all. Steph and I are here. The Watneys are here. But let's praise and worship Jesus Christ.